0: God's honored you down through the years. And uh, for you just to be able to come and share what God has done in your life, uh, I just want to say how much I appreciate your coming. God bless you. Come and speak to us. Let's just welcome him now. Thank you. I am more grateful than words can say for the opportunity to be here with you. When I received the invitation from Brother Joe Webb, I thought, he's really taking a risk. We've never met face-to-face until we met each other here Wednesday. Um, I don't know how much he knew about me. He never heard me speak. And I thought, he's really sticking his neck out. I am so happy that I could be here along with my dear wife and to listen to all of these wonderful things that the brothers have shared with us to hear this marvelous music I rejoice and I am grateful for this opportunity over 40 years ago I was invited to speak in a little town just south of Tulsa Oklahoma called Broken Arrow Uh, and uh, DeVern Fromke was present at that conference, or those conferences. And after we concluded, he asked if uh, he might have the opportunity to take those tapes back and edit them. And the next year, he brought out a book. He published the book. He did all the work on it. I, I, I spoke the messages, and he took it from there. And uh, he put the title on the book designed to express his life. When I received the program from Dr. Webb for this conference, I noticed he put the title for my final address here as designed to express his life. I thought, well, he's been talking to Devern Key. and uh, I'm saying that was not the case. I don't know where he picked it up. Maybe he saw the book. But I'm so happy that Devern and his dear wife Ruth are here. We've had such wonderful fellowship these days. I thought, my goodness, they ought to be on the platform instead of myself. Um, God only knows how much I respect and admire dear DeVern. I met him in 1964 in California. We've only seen each other rarely since then, but I have the deepest, the highest regard, I should say, for him. Barbershops fascinate me. It's not the barbers. It's not the big chairs that look a little like thrones. You know what it is? It's the mirrors. Mirrors all over the place. Mirrors on all the walls. Everywhere you look, there's mirrors. When I was a child, my father would take me to the barber shop to get my hair cut. And I thought, my, this is fascinating. I walk into the shop and I see myself everywhere all over the place and when you get some of the reflections with reflections you appear several times there like in depth you know the whole thing has a a third dimension to it you know why that fascinates me because I think God sees us like a barbershop or at least that's the way we should look in his sight let me take you to first excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. I think you'll see what I mean. I'm going to read first from the New American Standard Version, and I'm going to explain why I'm not completely satisfied with the translation they've given here. I'm going to read from another translation then. But here in 2 Corinthians 3 18, we read, but we all with unveiled face, beholding As in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, that text has a nice thought, but it's not really clear. According to the reading in this translation, it looks like we're looking into the mirror. And that's not what Paul is saying. I'm going to read from the NIV where it's much more precise. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're the mirrors. Let me give you an illustration. Friday evening, Dr. Webb invited all of the speakers and wives and the musicians to meet with him for supper in the restaurant here, just a few feet from where we are now. They put together a long row of tables. And when um, a number of us sat down, then Dr. Webb walked in, and he sat right in front of me. Now, I'm not kidding you when I tell you his face was shining. I'm not talking about anything supernatural, but his face was shining. You know why? The sun was coming through the window behind me, hit him right in the face. And he moved around a little bit trying to dodge it, and finally we got somebody to pull the curtain a bit. But I thought, my, what an illustration. What an illustration. The Lord wants us to shine Because of his light. You know, I thought, no wonder that some of the um, indigenous groups that have never heard the gospel worship the sun. That's where the light comes from. God wants us all to turn toward the light. It is we who are reflecting as mirrors, not God. He wants us all to be reflectors, mirrors. None of us can produce light by He made him different from every other creature in heaven and earth. He breathed on that mass of clay and gave it his own life. He made man in his image. Until sin marred us, we reflected God's image. In fact, God made human beings so that our lives would look like his life. If you didn't hear that from Ken Nair last night, you need to go back over and listen to it. That's what he was saying through the two hours he spoke to us. God didn't just paint a picture of himself on us. He put his own life, his own spirit in us. In Psalm 8, David exalts God's creation of man by saying, What is man that you're mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. There's an alternative reading to verse 5 that says, you made him a little lower than a god. I don't know Hebrew, but I've heard others that refer to that and said that probably is a better translation. God has marvelous and exalted plans for his people. He wants us to be like him to the point that we express his life, his character, and even his glory in the earth. Now, I don't know what you have been hearing, but I tell you very sincerely, in my understanding, this has been the overriding message Of the conferences these days I've heard it over and over again in the different speakers God is revealing himself in our relationships in our marriage I'm going to get to that uh, a little later on in the passage we just read from Paul's letter to the Corinthians we're told that God is transforming us from glory to glory many Christians view God's glory as a breathtaking personal experience, a subjective experience. But God's purpose is not to give us a thrill, but to enable us to express his life in such a way that others are drawn to him. The first instance we find in the Bible of a person to whom God revealed his glory is Moses on Mount Sinai. I'm sure God's glory was revealed to Adam and Eve in the garden, but the Bible doesn't tell us much about that. On Mount Sinai, Moses argued with the Lord about whether or not God's presence would accompany them in their journey through the wilderness. God said he would not go with them because they were a rebellious people, but he would instead send an angel to lead them. And Moses said to God that if that was the case, then he was unwilling to go any further. Unless God would accompany Israel, how could they know and experience his favor and his grace? Finally, you know, God, I think God is happy when his people argue with him like that. Uh, He certainly responded well to Moses. He said that he would go with them. Then Moses made a bold request. It was like he said, well, I got the first base. Let's see if I can get the second. And in Exodus 33, we read this. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. All of us have looked up in the sky and seen the sun. But if you look too long at the sun, you could go blind. And no one can get very near the sun. You would burn up. We need to understand that God's glory is revealed to us. But don't get too close yet. You can't handle it yet. Then the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, But my face shall not be seen. To me the most interesting facet of this story appears in the following chapter, Exodus 34, where we read this. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai. And the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain. That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone. Because of his speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke to them, and afterward all the sons of Israel came near. And he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. Maybe that's one of the reasons Moses wanted to get into the tabernacle rather frequently—get the veil off, see God face to face. The Lord said once of Moses when his brother and sister complained about uh, Moses trying to carry all the leadership role, and uh, they said, "Well, why can't we pass that around?" And God said. If there are prophets among the, among you, I'll speak to them in, in dreams and visions, but not so with my servant Moses. I'll speak with him face to face. Notice, first of all, that because God in his glory had been speaking with Moses, the latter's face was shining. Secondly, notice that Moses did not know His face was shining. The account then reveals that because the Israelites found the shining to be a distraction, Moses put a veil over his face. However, when he returned to the tabernacle to talk with God, he would remove the veil. This is the account from which Paul draws the image to which he refers in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's writing about a supernatural transformation, first in Moses... And then in all of us who behold the Lord with unveiled face. Paul expressly says, We are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. When John wrote in his prologue to his gospel about God's word, His logos, the expression of his person becoming incarnate on earth among men. He affirms essentially the same thing. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I. And for he existed before me. For of his fullness we've all received and grace upon grace. Now when John records at the end of the book of Revelation the vision he received of the new Jerusalem, he writes this, And I saw no temple in it, For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it. And the lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime... For there shall be no night there. Its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. I wonder sometimes, maybe those streets of gold were gold because of the reflection of the glory of God. I don't know, just a thought that occurred to me. The glory of the Lamb of God is the glory of the Heavenly Father. It's the glory that illuminates our life and testimony. Jesus said in John 14 to Philip, Philip, he that's seen me has seen the Father. The Father shines upon me. The Father shines through me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. It's the same glory that illuminates our life and testimony. This is something supernatural, not the result of intelligence or effort. The church has a glorious destiny in God's eternal plan and purpose. Consider the way Paul prays for God's people in Ephesians chapter 1, where he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him, who feels all in all. Here Paul prays that our hearts might be enlightened to behold God's glory in the church. Granted, it's reflected glory, but it's the reflected glory of God. If all we see are people in the pews, struggles and conflicts in the ministry, weariness in Christian service, We are not seeing what God has purposed to reveal in his people. I declare that if you once see the glory of the church, you're going to see far much more to be happy about than to be complaining about. God has chosen to reveal himself in his church. Habakkuk's prayer in the midst of spiritual decadence And political disarray reveals the focus that God gave him in response to his urgent cry to understand what the Lord was doing. And Habakkuk said, is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters Cover the sea. Now there was nothing in Habakkuk's environment that would give him any reason to believe that could happen. But God said, that's what's going to be. That's my purpose. My glory is going to be revealed everywhere. In these conferences and in our reflections during these days of pondering together God's purpose for marriage as a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman, we need to keep focused on God's glorious plan for this relationship. Not as something to be endured, but as a means to reveal His glory in the earth. Just as the Apostle Paul seeks to raise our sights to perceive the glory of God Beyond all our human struggling trials and pains, he also wants us to perceive marriage as a genuinely glorious relationship of great value to the Lord, as well as to the marriage partners. This seems to be what he has in mind in writing to the Corinthians, even in the midst of a passage of scripture which to many seem obscure and archaic. I refer to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, where we read, For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Rather than getting bogged down in an effort to properly understand the issue of head covering, we find here a marvelous truth which with, which fits right into what we have been considering. In the marriage relationship, the man is the image and glory of God, and the woman is the glory of man. Whatever else it means, it is surely affirming that in marriage, the husband is to reveal God's glory. And Ken gave us a marvelous uh, scriptural presentation last night to show us something of what that means. He is to be to his wife an expression of the Lord's presence, his favor, his grace, and his goodness. What a challenge for those of us who are husbands. When that is the case, the second phrase takes on new significance, the woman is the glory of the man. A woman who is loved and cared for, who is favored to have a husband who shines upon her as the light of God, God's grace, God's goodness. She also reflects God's glory in her character and personality. If a married woman is not shining, there's one of two problems. Either her relationship to her husband is not what it should be or her husband's relationship to the Lord is not what it should be. The principal subject of our conversations and meditations this weekend has been marriage for a lifetime. But in God's sight, that is much more than an endurance test. God's glory is to be revealed in our marriages, in our home, and in our children. Let me conclude with a beautiful and challenging passage from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. Therefore, he says, Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves, as your bond servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness," is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. What a marvelous challenge. What a marvelous destiny. God bless all of us.